Reading tonight will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 18. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves to you, but give you an opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all die, and if he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. There was a couple of cards that I got in the box back in the back for the Asking for a Friend series that had to do with the same issues, so we're going to deal with that issue this evening. One of the cards was phrased like this, how do I help a friend who's become apathetic in their faith? That is, they become, uh, they felt like that they've just become lazy or just irresponsible or just wanting to kind of sit back and uh, let others do the work. The other one was phrased in this way, and I've actually titled this to uh, with the sermon this evening, and that is, what do I do when I want to serve Christ and doing the hard work of God, but I don't feel like my heart is in it. These are relevant questions for each one of us because if we're being honest with ourselves, there's a lot of times or sometimes that we're all going to do work for the Lord and it doesn't feel like our hearts are in it. And certainly we understand that the Lord wants us to do the things we do from the heart. And the Lord wants us to do the things that, uh, that please Him, but He wants us to do them from the right motive. You can go no further than 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where it talks about speaking with the tongues of men and angels, but not having love. What that is, is the motive for what keeps us doing what it is that we're doing. He would go on to talk about the way that the person thinks. If I understand or I have the gift of knowledge and understand all prophecy and, and, and I'm, I'd have no love, he says, I'm nothing. I don't have love, I'm nothing. And he says, what if I give my body to be burned? What if it is that, uh, that I give all my possessions to feed the poor? He says, if I don't have love, then I'm nothing. It profits me nothing. So we understand that the Lord wants the right actions, but he also wants it from the right heart. Well, what do, what do we do when the heart is not in it? What do we do whenever it feels like we're just kind of going through the motions? How is it that we can reclaim, as it were, our motivation for living and behaving as Christians ought in this life. We're going to be talking about six different C's this evening for recapturing that motivation. But what I'd like to do this evening first from, and you can leave your Bible open there to 2 Corinthians 5 because the lesson's going to come from the scripture reading that Chandler read. And nestled right in the middle of this is, I believe, exactly what each one of us wants as far as our faith goes. As Paul writes the second letter to Corinth, 
You remember in the first lesson, he really had to come down hard on those Christians. They were doing a number of things that were ungodly, things like dividing the church based upon, it seems, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, who baptized them. Having some that were uh, dividing and creating factions within the church, some that were saying, I'm Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. There were some who were celebrating an immorality that was not even named among the Gentiles there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There were some that were taking each other to court. There were some that were eating of meat that was sacrificed to idols. There were some that were misusing their spiritual gifts and envying some who had the certain spiritual gifts and maybe looking down their noses on others who didn't have these spiritual gifts. And they were just really, in a lot of cases or a lot of instances, they were just kind of a mess of a church. But as Paul writes these things for their encouragement and for their correction, 2 Corinthians tells us that they received this instruction and this correction well. In fact, a lot of what Paul has to say is, uh, is positive in nature in terms of the changes that they've made. You just read chapter 7 about 2 Corinthians, and he talks about the changes that they made, a godly sorrow, as we talk about with our kids. And as they godly sorrowed, there were still people that were saying, you don't really have to listen to the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul is kind of just a pseudo-apostle. That's what people were saying there in Corinth. And he's maybe uh, bold in his letters, but you know what? When you get him in person, he's just as weak as a kitten. He's not going to tell you exactly what he thinks. It's only going to be. And we know people like that, don't we? They can write up somebody really, really strongly, maybe on, online, or they can write a really, really strongly worded email, but whenever it is that they, you meet them face-to-face, -face, it seems like they're very, very timid. That was some of the accusations people were making about Paul. And as Paul has to defend himself, particularly in the latter portion of 2 Corinthians, against these people, note what he says nestled right in here in the middle of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because I believe this is what we all want our faith to be. I want a faith that is, look at verse 11, genuine. Genuine. The second part, but we are well known to God. That's what I want to be in my faith. What about you? I want to be a person that's well known to God. And then he goes on and says, I trust we're well known in your consciences. People looked at Paul and they, they saw his genuineness and how it was that he preached the gospel when he was there the first time. And he says, you know. I know I'm well known to God based upon the work that I've done. I've got a genuine faith. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what I want? Look further in the context, verse 12. He wants a faith that's commendable. He says, we do not, there's our word, commend ourselves again to you, but we give opportunity to boast for you to boast on our behalf. Tell me what you really think of me. Tell me what it is that you think that I've done for the service of the Lord. I'm not going to stand up here and recite my resume of all the good things that I've done for God, all the good things that I've done for Christ. I want you to rehearse that to me. In fact, in chapter 3, he would go on to say, you're our epistles. I've written this letter and you guys are it. This is the result of my work among the Corinthian church. I want a faith that's genuine. I want a faith that's commendable. I want a faith that is a model for others. That's really what it was that he was telling them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 1. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I want a model of faith that's worthy of imitation. And as he talks about, he says that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. As you look at the Apostle Paul and you look at his life and you commend him based upon what he's done for the cause of the gospel, 
He says, I want you to see that my faith has been a model of everything that it ought to be. I want a faith that's genuine and commendable and a model for others, but also something that's a faith that's passionate. Passionate. Interesting phrasing there in verse 13. For if we are, some versions say, out of our minds. There might have been some people there at Corinth that were saying, Paul is just a lunatic. He is nuts. His elevator doesn't go all the way to the top, as it were. He's left some of his groceries at the store. Paul is just a madman. And Paul says, if that's true, that I'm a madman, it's for the sake of God. If I've got my mind screwed on, my head screwed on correctly, it's for you. So that you can know what God's will is. But he says, this is the way that I'm going to behave. I'm going to behave in a passionate way because the gospel is that serious. Because that's what it's worth to helping you to understand the heart of God better. And to living out your Christian life better. Aren't these four characteristics right here in the middle of the context things that you want of your faith and things that I want of my faith? So the question is, how does the context around these four things support us having the right kind of motivation and not becoming apathetic in our faith? Here are six C's for you to consider this evening as we talk about reclaiming our motivation. Number one, we have a compulsion to please Jesus. A compulsion to please Jesus. Therefore, verse 9, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be pleasing, well-pleasing unto Him. We make it our labor. We make it our aim. That's a word that means fond of honor. I am fond of the Lord giving His approval to me and to my life and to my Christian service. And we make it our, uh, our aim so that we do what we do so that when we meet our sa Savior face to face, He can say, in the words of Matthew 25, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. Folks, what we've got to remember in reclaiming our motivation is any service that we render that's according to the biblical standard. That's according to what we have as far as good works goes, like we've been talking about in Titus. Anything that we do, we're doing for the service ultimately of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And any service I render, I'm rendering because I love Him and because I want to hear well done. If you go through the New Testament, a great study to do would be look at all the times that it says... Do the things that you do as unto the Lord. Do these things as unto the Lord. You know what you're going to come across? You're going to come across things like, Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church. Ephesians 5, 22 and following. Servants, obey your masters as unto the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 7. We sing sometimes the song, Make Me a Servant, particularly in the youth group. Service to others is service to you. It's service to our King. And when we think about compulsion to please Jesus, never underestimate the power of praise. Never underestimate the power of praise. You know what they tell us that children need a whole lot of? Oh, positive reinforcement and praise. 
when you have a young man or young woman that does an excellent job, there is nothing like looking that child in the eye and saying, I am so proud of you. You've done a wonderful job. And that just swells in their soul and swells in their, their heart so that it is that they have more of a, a, a compulsion to please mom and dad or teacher or whoever it is that they're talking about. Never underestimate the power of praise. And when we talk about the praise of our Lord, the ability that we have to hear the king, the one we have committed our lives to serve, to say, you've done such a great job. I'm so proud of you. I know you. I appreciate you. You've done well. That is a key to regaining, to recapturing a motivation. Number two, compulsion to please Jesus, but also compensation. Compensation. There's a payday coming. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things that are done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or whether bad. The word appear has to do with becoming known, to cease what somebody really is, and to know just like they're already known. Listen, you're going to find people in this life that are able to fool a whole lot of people with regard to their character and their conduct, isn't that right? that you never really know what the character of a person is until something happens and it's revealed. And Well, I never knew that. Sometimes on the news you see this person that's across the street from something horrific happened. Well, he was just a quiet neighbor. I, I, didn't, I didn't ever suspect he was always such a good neighbor. And you see people that are... You ever think that there's going to be Christians like that on the Day of Judgment? Where it is, they're standing before the judgment bar of God and they're receiving the things done in their body and we thought that this was a person that was solid as a Christian. And it turns out they had some serious things going on in their lives. All of those things are going to be made known, as this verse talks about, to see who or what a person's done for what they've been laboring, their conduct as a whole. Has their conduct as a whole been profitable for the Lord or has it been worthless to the Lord? We may each receive the things that are done in the body according to what he has my version says done. The word is practiced or be busied with or carried on or undertook. It has to do with good or bad. And he's trying to convict these people there in verse 12 who are boasting in appearance and not in heart. Here's the people in context that are saying, look at what a solid Christian I am. Look at how much I do for the Corinthian church. And their heart is not in it. And they're just trying to gain advantage over somebody else. Paul says, you don't be like that. You remember that you have a compulsion to please Jesus, but also that there's compensation. What we've committed to, keep it going. There's a payday someday. Number three, there's a conviction for what's coming. A conviction for what's coming. Verse 11, there's urgency in the statement. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the terror, knowing the, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. This is an awesome feeling of reverence and respect. And as he goes on in the really the urgent tone of voice, look at uh, chapter 6 and verse 1. We now plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You get a real sense of urgency. Knowing the terror of the Lord. We go out and we're trying to compel and trying to persuade people that this is the way it is. And it's, it's my family, it's my friends, it's my neighbors, it's my loved ones that are going to stand in judgment prepared or unprepared. 
There's an older song that we have in our songbook that uh, I haven't heard in years. But it's a song called You Never Mentioned Them to Me. You, you know how haunting that song is? About how it is that uh, your, uh, the picture is exactly what we're talking about here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we're all standing there around waiting for our turn in front of the judgment bar of God. And we know and we think about uh, standing before God and waiting our turn, and we see one of our friends or our neighbors down there standing before him. And he turns around, he looks at us and says, you never mentioned them to me. You saw me day by day. You knew I was astray. You knew that I was going to come and, and stand before God one day, and you chose not to say anything. Does that sound like the urgency of 2 Corinthians 5? Listen, I don't want anybody to stand unprepared before the judgment bar of God. I don't want anybody to know that terror, not my worst enemy. It's a compulsion. It's a, a complete to Jesus, but it's a conviction for what's coming. We don't want anybody to be separated from God, and that keeps us going. Number four, about compassion for others. Compassion for others. On the heels of the one we just talked about, the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, if one died for all, then all died. The love of Christ, Old King James says, constraineth us. It holds us together. <laughs> Audrey and I... Uh, she got a, 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 a Aladdin puzzle, one of those genie puzzles. It's a 3D puzzle. And as she and I were working that together, what happens is, is that you have the base just sitting here, and then you've got a whole bunch of odd-looking parts. And as you're putting this 3D puzzle together, it was the genie from Aladdin. And as you're doing this, the problem is you can't have one piece just sitting there, otherwise they'll all just fall off. And so what you have to do is you have to kind of smash it together while you're looking for other pieces before it is that you're able to stick this rod in that'll hold everything together. That's this word, constrain it, or the love of Christ compels us. It's the glue that holds everything together, but you're not done. As I'm doing this 3D puzzle, I add another piece, and then I put my finger up there on top. Then I add another piece, and I put my finger up there on top. And I add another piece, and I put my finger up there on top. It's not just a matter of holding things together. It's a matter of keeping the momentum going. What is the motivation for us living a Christian life in a way that God is going to be pleased with? It is the love of Christ that glues us all together. Folks, sometimes I, I think that we get the wrong notion that we think that everything I do ought to give me a sense of spirituality. That everything I do in the service to Jesus ought to feel good and ought to make me feel hyper-spiritual. I don't know how else to say it. It ought to make me feel a certain way, to give me the little tinglys on the back of my neck. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, that affection is not the glue that holds everything together. It is the commitment of Christ, the commitment unto Christ that holds everything together. And you know what that's going to do is it's going to hold the affections in their proper positions. There are people who are doing self-sacrificial things right now in this congregation who are taking care of people that can't take care of themselves. That doesn't feel good all the time. Sometimes when you're cleaning out bedpans or you're cleaning up somebody after it is that they've had a mess or something like that, it doesn't feel good. But it's spiritual. And because you love the Lord, you continue to behave in ways that are going to be honorable and pleasing to Him, even sometimes when it feels like your heart's not in it. Commitment, love, 
continuing to go even whenever it is that it's hard. A compassion for others keeps me going. If I can demonstrate the love of Christ and tell the love of Christ and model the love of Christ, you give people an opportunity to see what it is that they can truly have in Christ. Compassion for others. Number five, confidence in salvation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does that mean? What does that mean? We can have a confidence in what God has given us in our salvation. You go jump back to chapter 4 just for a moment. As Paul talks about having this treasure in earthen vessels and talking about his ministry as an apostle. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Paul says, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. As he's talking about himself being crucified for the sake of Christ and living for Christ or letting Christ live through him, it's an understanding that he is not the same old Paul that was persecuting the church before it was that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That was the old Paul. This is the Paul that's laboring for a different cause. This is a Paul who's continuing to suffer for Jesus and continuing to live for Jesus. And as he do, does this, look at chapter 4 and verse 16. He says, we're suffering some hard things as Christians, especially as apostles in this context. But he says in verse 16, therefore we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light of fiction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul says, I'm confident. I know that I have my salvation. I know that God's got a body prepared for me that's not made with hands. Chapter 5, verse 1 and following. And walking by faith and not by sight. Chapter 5, verse 7. It doesn't mean that you're always going to feel good about doing the Lord's work. It doesn't even mean that you're going to feel like it's spiritual. It's kind of like marriage. It's kind of like marriage. You're committed to your spouse. I hope that's the case. And you go through a phase, whenever it is, that as you're newlyweds, what do you want, schmoopy? I don't know. What do you want, schmoopy? Anybody go through the schmoopy phase? Anybody still in the schmoopy phase? Be honest. All right. <laughs> you can go ahead. But you understand that there is a phase where it's just lovey-dovey all the time, but then whenever there's real problems and real hardship that comes in, sometimes those affections don't stay in place like we were talking about just a moment ago. But that commitment stays there. And that commitment to being the person that you ought to be keeps the affections where they ought to be. There's a confidence in our walk. Chapter 5 and verse 8, we are always confident that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Last one. Folks, this is our job. We have a commission from the Lord. This is what God wants us to do. These are the good works that he has prepared for us. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. This is what we walk in from day to day. And as he talks about these things, he's talking about this, I believe, particularly with regard to the apostles. He says that all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. From chapter eight, uh, 5, verse 18, all the way through 21, he's going to use the term reconciled about five times. 
know what reconciled means? It means that here are two parties that were at odds at one time. And through a mediator, through somebody that's brought these two parties together, now they're back in friendship. They're back in fellowship together. And Paul says, we, speaking, I believe, of the apostles, we have this ministry of reconciliation, of bringing people back together and realizing that God has reconciled us all in one body, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, both Jews and Gentiles, but also the fact that all humanity has an opportunity now to come back to God, to be reconciled with God, a man whose sins have separated him from God, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, He has the opportunity to be back in a right relationship with him. Paul says we're ambassadors of Christ. Speaking of the apostles, they were spokesmen for Christ with the authority of Christ. And folks, I believe today we are ambassadors of Christ also so long as we speak his word. Not in the same way the apostles were, but we are ambassadors of his grace, of his goodwill, as we talked about this morning. And as each one of us go out like Ziba and try and find people, as we go out with the law of kindness and the law of grace on our lips like David, as we appreciate like Mephibosheth sitting at the table of God with our infirmities covered, and we realize that every day we have an opportunity to live for him and to glorify him as God and to point people to him, we're fulfilling our work. We're fulfilling our work. This is what we're created for to glorify God and to point people to him so that they can glorify God practically if you are struggling with motivation if you are struggling with apathy may I encourage you to talk to somebody about it that's James chapter 5 Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Find a Christian brother or sister, somebody that you respect, somebody that you see is a model, that's got a faith that's genuine, that's somebody that continually acts the way that they ought to. And say, brother, I'm really struggling. Sister, I'm really struggling. I need your help and I need your strength. I need you to go to God on my behalf. Can we work alongside together? Find somebody that's like that, that's got a faith that you look up to. God didn't design us to be Christians in secret or be Christians in isolation. God doesn't condone the Lone Ranger mentality. But when we find somebody that we love and whose faith is worthy of imitation, follow them, imitate them. Say, can I go on that visit with you? Can I, can I go and make a, make a plate of brownies alongside of you? Can, can we talk about these things? And I think what you're going to find is that person's commitment to Christ, the glue that holds it together, keeps their affections for Christ burning strong. And it is something that glorifies God, but also encourages the rest of us who struggle in our faith. That's our lesson for this evening. I hope it is that you realize that this is a place where we share burdens, where we encourage one another, where we pray for one another. And if it is that we can help you as a Christian in your faith and strengthening your faith, that you'll bring that before us and that you'll allow us to pray with you and pray for you for the fervency, for the zeal to return. Maybe it is that there's people here this evening who are not Christians and that would like to become one. We'd love to be able to help you and study with you, pray with you, pray for you. Or if you're ready to obey the gospel this evening, won't you make whatever it is that you have known now as we stand and sing our song?